Hi, everyone. We have a quick announcement before the show today. SmartLogic, the custom software shop behind this very podcast, is hiring for a mid-level Rails or Elixir developer. Our team is fully remote and this position is open to applications from anywhere in the United States. You can read the full job description and apply at smartlogic.io slash jobs. Okay, now on to the show. Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by SmartLogic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Alex Hausen, and I'll be your host today. I'm joined by my co-host, Sundi Mian. Hey, Sundi. Hey. And my producer, Eric Ostrich. What's up, Eric? Not much. <laughs> Not much. Same here. The season's theme is Beam Magic, and we're joined today by special guest, Maxim Fedorov. Hi, Maxim. Good day. It's great to have you on. We've been wanting to chat with you for a while. To jump in, how did you get into programming? What was your path like? I think it all started with a programmable calculator produced, I think, in Soviet Union. If memory serves me well, that was Electronica MK61 or something. I think if that's 105 steps to write a program and like 15 registers to store your data, I was likely to be 11 years old. And even at that age, I managed to make some sort of a calculator game. It wasn't a computer game, it was a calculator game. And then in high school, I've got a research supervisor who provided me with access to a real PC. And that's how I eventually made it to a computer science faculty at one of the best technical universities in Russia. And I guess six years, that I spent there learning counts and some sort of a formal training. So I'm a certified software developer. That's so funny about the calculators because I have vivid memories of playing calculator games that friends had programmed in high school. And we would pass around our calculators in class, which we weren't supposed to do, but it was still fun. That's so cool. How did you make your way as you said, as a certified software developer, how did you make your way into the cybersecurity field? I guess it's less of a cybersecurity, more of a network security, and uh, I guess some basic cryptography knowledge. It's also rooted in my education, I think, and uh, reinforced at a few places that I used to work. Interestingly, I can even remember the first serious project I've been involved. It was a firewall branded as Stop Sign Firewall was designed for Windows 95, if anyone remembers. And I had to learn a lot of things from networking guts, TCP things, to some public key infrastructure because it had quite an interesting way to monitor SSL, TLS security connections. There's like this interesting intersection of time and place that influences the kind of computer engineering or software development that we all get into as programmers. I'm curious, like, was there any influential factor in your studies or something that kind of pushed you towards the field that you entered in, like maybe your parents or your college or different factors? Because I think we've seen that a lot is like the time in which you entered your studies and also what's popular with your friends can really influence that kind of path. Interesting. I actually never thought of that. I don't think there were any friends who influenced me to try that. And I think the thing that attracted me was 
you know, the whole new world to explore and experiment with. Like you get a calculator or computer, then you press a button, you type a few words and maybe do to like enter some line and then the machine replies to you. It's like being an explorer. Now that I think more about it, I might have been blurred with that logic, precision and determinism. If the machine doesn't do what I want, it's because I didn't make it crystal clear what I actually want. Everything has some logical explanation. And sometimes it takes almost a detective work to figure out why the machine responded in a different way and did not what I wanted, but what it did. So it's almost like a game of some sort, but it has some well-defined rules and like specific win criteria. So I think many young boys are easily excited with some kind of a game like that. So that I think what made me to learn how to program and like be somewhat excited about that. I know that for me, when I went to college and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, both of my parents told me, you're a very good problem solver and you're pretty logical. And this is something we think you would be good at. So you should explore it. I think you're right. There's some like puzzle aspects to it. How do all the pieces fit together? What piece am I missing to make everything work? And it's a fun challenge. Sometimes it's frustrating, but most of the time it's a fun challenge. It's funny, Alex, because my parents were like, we just want you to be some kind of engineer. Just pick an engineering. (laughs) You can never go wrong with engineering. (laughs) (laughs) That is so true. Really, any of them. Sunday spotted a quote on your LinkedIn and that we wanted to talk to you about because more recently we've been doing some fun and crazy work with time zones. And so I'm going to let her take this question. Yeah. So somewhere on your LinkedIn, you had something you specified 24-7-366 dash on a leap year. You like specified the leap year piece. And I was just like, this person has probably done something with time zones and really hated it so much to the point where they or loved it. You never know. People love problems or working through problems. So do you have specific thoughts about time? Time is a construct, time and programming. <laughs> so I guess some, that's some sort of a confirmation by yes. Not really. I, I actually don't use LinkedIn. I don't use it often. I maybe update it once every couple of years. But I think I remember my line of thoughts as initially I wanted to write like a 24 by 7 by 365 because that's what's everywhere. And then I quickly realized, okay, but then it means that every leap year, WhatsApp is down for the entire day, which isn't true. So I decided, okay, I'll better put 366. And if someone says, okay, you work one more day, in a year, then there is time for that. I can say, that's fine. We have that nice reliability. That's really funny. That was actually kind of the leading question there or where we wanted to go with that is, can you talk about how you handle time on a communication app where I'm assuming you actually, not every application really has to worry about time zones, but I'm assuming that a communication application would have to. I would probably say that Erlang and OTP does most of the work for us. It has enough facilities to work with time. And to be honest, sometimes I think it has too many facilities, especially when looking at the diagram that says how the monotonic time works, how the OS system time works, how the wall clock time works, and then how the beam time works, which is 
all different ways to understand the time. I find WhatsApp fascinating. Part of the reason I think is because its use is so prevalent all over the world, but more so I would say outside of the United States. That's my assumption. Why do you think that is? Hypothesize just in general. It's always been very interesting to me. Anytime I go to Europe, I get WhatsApp. I re-download it, but I don't really use it at home. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. So first, I can definitely tell that it is just the best messaging application. So that's just true. And that's why I think it is used everywhere in the world. But I think one of the most contributing factor was the specific focus on simplicity, reliability, and security of the application that attracted many people. WhatsApp works everywhere and works reliably. Even if you have a, like a, a really cheap, a really simple Kaios geophone in India, it works just as good as if you have the newest modern iPhone. You can still use all of the features that you want to. So it connects people around the world and it does it ubiquitously. If you are using, I don't know, probably even the old phone with buttons, it, it may still work there. Yeah, I definitely think you're correct. The times I've used it, the seamless connection to people is delightful. And the ease of communicating with people across country, continent boundaries is much easier on something like WhatsApp than it is just on iMessage. I've personally found that. You spoke to this a minute ago, but how do you use Erlang at WhatsApp? Erlang still powers all messaging at WhatsApp. Every message you send, every call you offer, or every live location point that you send or share, it passes over one or more Erlang-powered machines. That's probably concludes it. Were you at WhatsApp for the decision process of when Erlang was chosen? No, I joined later. And in fact, I joined after the acquisition had already happened. I wasn't aware of that. And to be honest, when I was interviewing at WhatsApp, I really didn't know much about WhatsApp or Facebook or the relation between the two. And it's weird, but I wasn't a WhatsApp user at that time. That's fair. I mean, when you're interviewing somewhere, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to use the thing. And sometimes I actually, I think only once in my life have I worked at a company where people who weren't in the software industry or just like anybody on the street that I walked into and I was like, I work at this place. It's like, oh, I've heard of that place. I've been there for that product. So that's fair. Are you a WhatsApp user now for yourself or not just for testing? <laughs> oh, yes. Now I am a really big user. It's probably one of the first times in my life where I am one of the, I guess, the biggest and the most happy user of the software that, that I'm working on. Yeah. It's always fun when you can really enjoy your work. It's very rewarding, but also just interesting. And sometimes, you know, you're really immersed in it when you can turn the developer part of your brain off and just sort of use it as a user. So it's always fun. So you said you weren't there when Erlang was picked. Do you know anything about the decision, though? Like, did you hear about the history or, or why that was picked as the language to work on the app in? I wasn't there when it actually happened, but I think I understand the rationale and the, the reasoning behind that choice. It's quite simple. Erlang is a tool that is built for the purpose, the telecommunications and signaling in telecom networks. So Erlang is designed for real-time communications. And 
even the virtual machine that powers Erlang, that's called Beam. It implements a very nice way to work with highly concurrent code, which is what we have when millions or billions of users are sending messages concurrently to each other. So the language and ecosystem fits well the problem space we are working in. I actually remember Ryan Acton saying, if we only had a single roadblock or a hurdle, we might have abandoned Erlang, but luckily that has never happened. So that I think explains how smooth was our experience with Erlang. And I think another reason, it's no secret that eJabberD XMPP server was first chosen to power WhatsApp for its ability to easily scale over multiple machines. While I think there is not a single line of code left since the original incarnation, I guess that was also a good decision that allowed engineers to focus, which is the most important word for WhatsApp, on what was important instead of battling over language choices or framework or specific server implementation or something like that. I do have to ask, just because we are in the Elixir Wizards, and you know, it'd be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to ask, have you explored Elixir at all for any small part of the application or migrating some of the code over or considered it? Any thoughts? Personally, as a developer, I obviously tried Elixir and worked with it a little bit. But as a company representative, I would say that introducing a new language at this scale is a very serious choice because it means a lot of investment and it also leads to fragmentation and therefore it has to be justified seriously. Therefore, even though we do have some amount of engineers that would be happy to work because they have some prior Elixir experience, they would be happy to produce code and code their services in Elixir. We currently do not support and do not yet have any plans to introduce Elixir at this scale. Yeah, very understandable. It's something that we talked a lot in our our season about adopting Elixir is how companies with larger code bases that they might need to really change the way that their entire code is structured and their team is structured to uh, accommodate new languages, any, any new language, really. And you don't want to, I think Eric would attest to this, you don't want to just change it all for the hot new thing, right? So got to do what's right for the team. Alex, did you have something you wanted to add there? <laughs> well, I was going to say not to mention, there's the time and burden of introducing a new language and all of the odds and ends that come with trying to essentially recreate what you've got, but then also the time that has to be spent onboarding engineers to a new language if they're not familiar with it. And that in and of itself is a huge undertaking. I mean, my first job in Elixir was learning on the job, which was great, but it takes a lot to get you up to the point where you're very productive working in that language. Yeah. And I was going to add, and if something goes wrong, but somehow this service already went to production, it takes even more to undo and remove the new framework or the new language or the new ecosystem that has been brought. It probably is 10x work compared to bringing new things in. Have you, during your time at WhatsApp so far, experienced a large production outage? I guess that depends on a definition of an outage on production and what do you mean by large? By WhatsApp scale, even like 10 minutes 
outage when users cannot connect is considered to be large. And yes, there have been at least a couple of cases when WhatsApp users were not able to send messages for some extended periods of time. By extended, I mean more than like five seconds. And I imagine a question that I had written down was you gave a talk a few years ago about scaling as WhatsApp was growing. And at the time, WhatsApp, I think, was at 1.5 billion, and now it's upwards of two. What has that scaling been like from 1.5 to two? Has it been any different, any more challenging than scaling up to the 1.5 billion? Frankly, the safety margin put in the Beam and OTP is so large that we were able to scale production deployment without any serious issues. But what we are facing now is more of a challenge in developer experience. So Erlang has not been built with large code bases in mind, and it needs like more modern tooling, better testing framework. But that's, I guess, something that is on us to contribute because we are probably one of the largest users of that language. Are there any internal plans for the WhatsApp engineering team to start those contributions? I would probably put it this way. So there were previous mentions of WhatsApp fork of Erlang and WhatsApp fork of OTP and some dark magic associated with it. And probably there were some talks about it five to seven years ago. And no longer you hear those talks because WhatsApp has already contributed uh, quite a number of improvements to OTP. And yes, we do plan to work with the community to contribute even more changes and improvements, and not necessarily to the language, but also to the ecosystem, to the infrastructure. And we also support Erlang Ecosystem Foundation, even though it has Erlang in its name, it's actually the Beam Ecosystem Foundation, including all languages, that means Elixir and, and other languages as well. Yeah, I think we discovered earlier this season, we actually weren't sure. We didn't know how many languages run on the Beam. I think it's something like 35. Eric can correct me if I'm wrong, but I did not know that. I knew there had to be more than Elixir, but I didn't really think that it was in like in the 30s. Are you using pure Erlang on most of WhatsApp or, or sorry, did you just say that you are using some kind of abstraction or? We are using Erlang in its purity, I guess. <laughs> Okay. We do have a number of core level libraries that we use throughout the entire WhatsApp, but it's Erlang as it is. Cool. And is there something very specifically that Erlang does that makes your job easier? It could be like something, a quality of the beam that makes it the perfect fit for WhatsApp or something like that. I think I already mentioned that Erlang and the Beam, and I guess you mean OTP in this case, not just the Beam itself, but the whole telecom platform. It's just a tool that is built for a purpose, and it just works. That's, I guess, one thing. But I would probably say that simplicity is the most important trait of an Erlang as a language, of an OTP as a platform, of a Beam as a VM. And for me, it's clear that it's probably the hardest job in the world to produce simple but very powerful abstractions. Beam, VM developers, are very good at that. Like They allow us to build everything on top of that. And building on top is a, is a breeze. That's actually why we see that many 35 languages that are built and work on top of Beam. That simplicity is an enabler. It just allows to build anything on top 
And building on top of complex and ever-changing API is always a, a serious challenge. OTP does a great job of retaining backwards compatibility, and sometimes it, it even takes it to extreme. One example would be Erlang term format that I think hasn't changed for like 10 years or even more. That what actually allows us to smoothly transition over multiple versions of Beam, go maybe up and down in many cases. Speaking of going up, I guess, since you're on the pure Erlang, have you guys tried out OTP24 and the, the JIT? I'm curious if that has some like massive repercussions of like the amount of servers and whatnot that something the size of WhatsApp requires. We actually announced that on an Earth Day that we saved a serious amount of machines by adopting the Masum JIT. I don't recall the exact numbers, but you can always refer to Twitter post made by Will Catcart, who is the WhatsApp VP right now at Facebook. Do you have any feelings on drawbacks of the Beam or anything that are more difficult to learn, address, teach other people? I think the most problematic part comes from lack of education at schools when we just don't do a good job of teaching children the functional approach and concurrency and so on. We always start with this like simple basic program or something similar that goes an imperative way, like print this, print that, if this, then that, and so on. And therefore, it gets very difficult, even for a child, and even more difficult for an adult, to switch this perception and the way of thinking into more functional style to understand what is supervision, to understand what is the unit of supervision of how these things are wired, how it connects to this, how it connects to that. So I guess the problem is not in the beam itself, but in not enough materials that we supply. There is not enough understanding of why it is important to have things done in this specific way or in that specific way. And what are the alternatives? So when new developers join, they have to literally relearn everything and understand everything from scratch. This is a big problem. It's a serious learning curve, or even I would say a learning cliff. You just try banging your head against this wall without really thinking, okay, how do I get this? How do I get that? How do I even run a loop of 10,000 steps? It's just so unusual when you first try it. So this learning curve made it a very difficult entrance. And therefore, it means there are not many developers who are proficient with Erlang and functional languages in general. And therefore, it makes it difficult for big companies to hire more people to work on that. And therefore, it shrinks the ecosystem once again, and it leads to that vicious cycle when there is only a small circle of those who is aware of how it works. That's, I guess, the problem, not even being itself, but the ecosystem in general. I love the phrase learning cliff. I think that's awesome and delightful and describes probably more things in life than learning curve does. I think you spoke to something that I think about a lot because in my college computer science program, you know, the focus was object-oriented languages and what have you, everything else related to that. And I took an optional functional and logical programming class and loved it. And I was 
I felt so in tune in that class, way more in tune than I did in any of my Java related classes. And I think that was definitely a benefit of coming into a job that allows me to use Elixir. What are your thoughts on, I mean, you spoke to some that there's a lack of learning of functional languages, but what are your thoughts on object-oriented languages in general? They have their market niche as well. They're great for doing the job they are designed for. And to be frank, I also started, I took a serious course on object-oriented programming and then the domain-driven design later down the road. So it has a lot of uses as well. Not everything can be easily modeled in Erlang or Elixir, and not everything can be easily modeled through object-oriented programming. So they're just different things for telecommunications and when there is some message passing happening. Yes, Erlang and similar languages are just shining. But when you need to represent a very chaotic or unstructured system, when there are some objects that are manipulating each other's properties, then probably object-oriented language is the better fit. It kind of makes me think a little bit of, you mentioned dark magic earlier, and you know, there's like a whole section that we wanted to talk to you about magic. Magic and programming is sort of the things that do things for you versus the languages like Java, which maybe you have to do more explicitly. And yes, that might be a lot of effort, but you might also know what you're doing more. So just curious what your thoughts are on magic and like how much magic is too much magic. Do you find there to be a lot of magic in Erlang? I would probably quote Arthur Clarke here, who said any advanced technology may be indistinguishable from magic, literally saying that if the technology is so advanced that most people don't understand it, it feels like magic. And my thinking here is that there is no magic. There are just great abstractions over specific problem domains. And to be honest, I don't really observe any magic in Erlang or Beam itself. It is, in fact, the opposite. It doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't do anything that you may consider to be magic. Instead, it lets you think in your design space abstractions, in what exactly you are trying to achieve, because it has these processes just like things are running in the world. And those processes, they can send messages. Like imagine you are a person and imagine you are a process. You can send a message to me. You can, you can say a word to me and then I will hear it. I may selectively receive it and decide not to respond or I can reply. I can send another message back to you. So it's not magic. It's just a representation of our world, of our real world. And therefore, since I don't think there is any serious magic, I actually believe that it is the right amount of magic, which means it's just not there. And if there is no magic, then it is easy to understand, predict, and determine what is going to happen next. And that's another nice trait of a functional language because it has right now immutable variable bindings slightly different in Elixir, but still a very similar approach. And then function will not have any side effects and you know what to expect from it. Is that magic or not? On one side, yes, because the function always produces the same result, regardless of like what called it and, and how it works. It only depends on the arguments input. 
But on the other side, it is some sort of, it's not magic at all. It's just how the language works. And you can see that if you can understand that there is no magic, which means it's just the right amount. So your team, no magic. Got it. <laughs> it's kind of funny because when I was first learning Elixir and I wasn't following certain things that were happening, I would have called some of the things that are happening on top of Erlang that are abstracting it out as potentially magic because I wasn't following what was happening because I'd have to dig into what it was doing on the Erlang side of things, which I never like really got to understand maybe until maybe more this year. So it's interesting to me to hear, you know, what you have to say, having worked on the magic layer has been peeled off and we're at the Erlang layer for you. So that's kind of cool. There's also too this, I guess the more work that I do, the more that I experience, the more that I learn about, the more that some of that hidden magic gets peeled away. I still have moments working and experiencing things, you know, as a customer or as an end user, where I think to myself, wow, that's incredible. But when you can work on something and then kind of peel off layers and take it apart and understand what's happening, it's very cool. It's a very enlightening experience to learn how everything is working together. Every time I have this, oh, that's how it works moments, I immediately realize, well, these guys definitely knew what they were doing when they started Erlang, when they decided to write it the way it works, when they designed the language, designed the syntax, designed the design at all. We call those aha moments. Did you have a particular aha moment around Erlang when you were first learning it? When I was first learning it, the aha moment was, eureka moment was, oh, that's how I make it run 1,000 times. That's how I make a loop in Erlang. Which is something, as somebody who works in Elixir, I don't know how to do. So as somebody who wants to learn more about Erlang, what are some good starting resources that you think people should look into? I would probably start with a few books that are available. The one that's reasonably old, but still very actual is Fred Hubbard's book, Learn You Some Erlang. And maybe one more modern book, which is, I think, Adopting Erlang which also has a few bits about Elixir as well. But it's a, it's, it's a great book in general. Of course, if you want to dive deeper, then you might want to look at Joe Armstrong's thesis, which is just one of the best write-ups about Erlang itself, the design, the concurrency design, the supervision and everything else. And in addition, if you really, really want to understand how the virtual machine works, there is the Beam book by Eric Steinman, which is another great example of what a good Erlang ecosystem developer should know about the Beam itself and the virtual machine and the ecosystem in general. I love that you mentioned a thesis paper. I'm the daughter of an academic who's actually here with me right now. She's in my house. And so there's something very overwhelming about seeing thesis papers and dissertations. But I love that you brought one up because they can be really incredible if you really can dive into them. But they can be long and hefty. Have you ever written a thesis paper? What was your college experience like learning? College experiences are so different across the world, right? You know, a very traditional four-year degree is what I have. What was your experience like? And also, where in the world did you go to college? Because you're not in the U.S., right? I don't think we actually covered where you where you currently are. <laughs> currently, I am in the U.S., even though I thought, okay, that will be just like a few years journey, and then I'll get back to Australia. But 
yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> but I did learn in Russia and Moscow State Technical University there. And my thesis was also, well, reasonably long, not like Joel's thesis, which is like a real book of like 400 pages or so. Mine was shorter and it was more about, interestingly, there was a work on spam filtering algorithms, spam classification, email classification, some, again, security-related things, some cryptography bits there as well. That's again, explains a little bit of my networking security background. It was not as exciting read as Joyce. And I think by now it's completely outdated and the algorithms presented there are no longer useful because they have been superseded by many other papers, unlike Joyce, which is still very valid and still very nice and still readable and still stands. Maybe it will stand even when my children will be learning computer science. I also have this theory that the next generation of kids will all know programming to some extent, just like a little bit because of just the way the world is right now. It, it should be an interesting time to see. I'm excited for it. But I've also been personally really interested in, in this last question around WhatsApp. Do you have a favorite project that you worked on or something that you contributed to in your time at WhatsApp? I would say that I'm really proud of scaling WhatsApp server to accommodate the needs of all our users. Now it's more than 2 billion. It's been my job, I think my passion as well, and my achievement too. I guess it was a combination of performance tuning. And here actually, this is where I want to say thanks to Lucas Larson and OTP team for bringing BMASM. That was a great achievement. But the second component to performance is scalability, which means ability to bring more computer power in. And now it's achieved through resource and then service discovery with PG process groups, which has now replaced PG2 in, in OTP as well. I'm proud to be the author. And I guess that's probably one of my favorite projects which has been shared with the community. How long did that scaling work take? If you speak of just scaling, it's ongoing work. It's never done. It's always just 1% complete. We are bringing more features, bringing more users, and therefore either bringing more servers or making existing servers more efficient. But if you mean just PG itself, I took so many iterations trying to improve existing PG to that by the time when they realized, okay, this no longer works, I need to take a, like a very different approach. And then it took me probably just one month or even less to write a very simplistic and it turned to be the best implementations that I could ever make. And very successful and incredibly impactful, which is incredible. Does WhatsApp have any projections for when you'll hit the 3 billion user mark? That question is probably better to ask data scientists, which I'm not. Those people talk about magic, some wizardry going on in the data science world, running some fun functions. The Sunday and I used to work together and all of the data scientists were women and we called them the data, data ladies. ladies. So shout out to the data ladies who taught us some things Most about data science. Yeah. All the SQL I know is because of our data ladies. I do want to ask you a fun question, maybe not even a question. 
But earlier, before we were recording, you you mentioned motorcycles. And I am intrigued how you got into motorcycles. What's your preferred motorcycle style? I obviously don't ride motorcycles because that was a weird question. My grandpa rode Harleys. I know that much. How did you get into it? I think I always wanted to. Maybe this is just one of the dangerous things that every boy and every man wants to try eventually. In Australia, I've got a job with an office that was in one of the central districts, and there was absolutely no parking for a car. And I lived slightly further away from the railway station, so it wasn't very comfortable to use any public transportation system or anything like that. And I thought, okay, there are traffic jams, there is no parking space, so what do I do? And then I realized, okay, there is... There are motorcycles. I can probably try one. I tried one. I loved it. And I realized, oh, okay, I can do more than just, you know, going back and forth to work and back. And then I realized, okay, that probably means I want to try some faster motorcycles or maybe those that are more exciting to ride, to control. And this is how I eventually got into a motorcycle track riding. I never became a real sportsman there. Let's be honest, I am too old for that. I'm probably too cautious, and that's why I'm still here, still still alive. But I did enjoy that. Now, at some point, it just happened that my favorite motorcycle was stolen, and that's how it ended my motorcycling, I would say, years for some amount of time, because that's another interesting story. As soon as my motorcycle got stolen, I realized, oh, I have no transportation to get to work. Now, getting out of the motorcycle will take some like long amount of time and they need to get to work like t- tomorrow, not just tomorrow, but the day after tomorrow as well. And I thought, okay, I saw a lot of people riding bicycles and that's how I got into even more dangerous sport, which is cycling, just cycling without any motors. It turned to be more dangerous because every time I realized, okay, I am doing 60 kilometers per hour downhill and I don't have any protection except for these tiny flimsy helmet on my head. Well, and as a bicyclist up against a car, the car is going to win every time. I'm so sorry your your motorcycle got stolen. That's so terrible. I've got another one, but by that time <laughs> it didn't really matter. Yeah, I was going to I wanted to say that I also I didn't have a motorcycle, but I had a moped in college and it was stolen and it was very 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 sad. And also had some funny stories that resulted in me having to deal with that years and years later. But anyways, I would also say caution is a good thing, but you're never too old. You can do anything you want to at any point in your life. So age is just a number, I believe is what people like to say. But also caution is a good thing. Like wear a helmet, all of that, you know. Yeah, that's why I've got another motorcycle now. (laughs) Maxime, do you have any final plugs or asks for our listeners? I don't think I have any other than to say thank you for listening. Thank you for having me and thank you for having these conversations. That was a blast, I think, and I enjoyed that a lot. That's so great to hear. It was great to have you. Before we close out the show, we'd like to share another quick mini feature interview, a brief segment where we showcase someone from the community at a company using Elixir in production and how they're using Elixir. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to the mini feature segment of Elixir Wizards. My name is Alex Hausend, and today we're speaking with David Hardwick, VP of Engineering at Stored. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you, Alex. It's great to have you. Just to dive, jump right in, 
how did you get started in programming? Oh, well, I've been doing programming for in the space, I'd say for about 25 years now. The first 15 years, I was doing consulting, custom application development, whatever the requirements were for that single customer. And the last 10 years have been in product, been working with a lot of different languages. And I'd say for the last 12 years or now, I've been more in the in the coach role, engineering manager, lead positions. Uh, last company, I was the CTO at Better Cloud. We started from zero folks. We grew to 300 people, about 100 people within the technology org over about seven and a half years. Pretty exciting. And then now I'm at Stored. I've been here about two years and the engineering team has gone from nine people to 50 in that time. So also a lot of growth. So it's been very challenging and enjoyable. Do you enjoy that growth period? Is that one of your favorite parts? Coming into a company, they've small amounts of people and then growing it out to be a more fully fledgling team. Yeah. I mean, it's depending on the rate of growth, it can be quite exhausting. I mean, it was a lot of work to find talented engineers these days. And we do a lot of outreach. I personally do a lot of outreach myself on LinkedIn to try to get candidates interested. And so it takes a lot of time to find great people. But it is fun. When a company is growing, there are more opportunities for personal growth or personal challenges. You get to see people's careers grow sometimes faster than they were expecting. And so that part is fun and is exciting. Yeah, you said something uh, depending on the pace and also I think the, the direction of growth. You always want to have like an end goal in mind when you're growing, not just filling and growing because you can, I guess. How did you find your way into the Elixir space? Yeah, so at the current company, we were at a stage where our MVP product, the first product for our customers, it was starting to buckle under the weight of its own tech debt. And we just couldn't meet the needs of the customers as they started to ask for more complex integrations with our platform. And it became clear that we needed to rebuild. So that was an opportunity for us to also look at another language. So we were doing Ruby on Rails on Heroku. I had a lot of experience with Google Cloud Platform. And so I wanted to move over to Google Cloud Platform. The CTO took it on his responsibility in terms of figuring out what would be that next language if we decided to choose another one. So he looked at a number of different languages. And after about two or so weeks of doing some proof of concepts and hands-on coding with a couple of different languages, collaborating with some of the engineering team members, he decided on Elixir. He thought that it would provide us certain benefits because my understanding is that one of the creator of Elixir came from the Ruby on Rails community. And, and since we had a lot of Ruby on Rails developers, there were certain developer affordances that made that a slightly easier on-ramp into that language. It also would provide us opportunities if we needed to do certain things that were native devices or machinery within a warehouse that we could still work with in the same language. So we saw a lot of versatility there. And so off we went. We had one engineer that worked with it, never professionally. And we just, we got going. And it was actually one of the highlights of my time so far here at Stored. In two and a half months, we built a system with nine engineers, starting at nine engineers. We grew 138% the size of that engineering org in that same time frame. We built an Elixir application. We didn't have a UI, but that it could take orders in from ERP systems, send them over to warehouses. We could get the receipts from the warehouses. We did this for both 
inbound orders and outbound orders. And we did it all in two and a half months. And it was just shocking that we were able to move that fast and learn it that quickly and be that successful. Yeah. Two and a half months is speedy. Wow. That's pretty incredible, honestly. How do the engineers like working in Elixir? It's a smaller community space. I know when I first started working in it, I had never heard of it before. So yeah, I mean, what's everybody's take on it? This is something that I like to pay attention to, just developer sentiment. <laughs> Are they happy? You know, because if it's that hard to hire folks, obviously you don't want to lose them because they don't enjoy the environment or the language that they're working with. And there was even a time where we considered, hey, if it's this hard to hire folks that have Elixir experience, should we go back to Ruby on Rails? And it was really just a, a thought that the CEO had and something we had to to consider at least. And it was refreshing to see the engineers that were years on Ruby on Rails saying, no, that's not what we should do. <laughs> we should stay with Elixir. And they really enjoy it. I, I really don't hear a lot of complaints, just a lot of more enjoyment and appreciate the learning. I think it attracts people that have done it and want to keep doing it. There's folks that have done it not in a professional setting, but want to get into it. So I think it's actually been helpful for us to hire folks to code in Elixir, even if they don't have that experience, because they are excited about that opportunity to code in a functional language, to learn from some of the folks on the team. We actually had one of the folks from that set up elixirschool.com joined us recently. And so we have a lot of talented people on the team and a, and a really strong learning environment that I'm, I'm really glad we made the choice. That's awesome. It's always nice to enjoy what you're doing. And I'm sure for you as a VP of engineering, you want your engineers to be happy. So it's delightful to know that they are. You spoke a minute ago about some of the things that your new Elixir application was able to do. And you mentioned ERP systems, but could you just take a step back and give us like a quick elevator pitch for what Stored is? Yeah, so Stored is building the cloud supply chain. And so what that means is we want companies that sell products to focus on that, delighting their customers, coming up with product ideas, selling it to them. They can sell it through multiple channels, e-commerce, direct with their sales team, and through marketplaces like Walmart or Amazon. We integrate with those all those platforms. We'll put all your orders in one place. We handle all of the inventory, all of the storage. We handle the shipping, whether or not it goes out of the warehouse on a box and a parcel, a UPS or a FedEx truck, or if it goes out on a, a freight truck because you're ordering pallets of, of materials for your B2B customers and return. So we, you just pay us what you use each month and we take care of the rest, just, just like cloud computing. That's really cool. I know that there's a lot to that, that I'm sure we could speak about for a very long time about the ins and outs of shipping and warehouse storage, because I'm sure that's just a lot of moving pieces all at once. But that's really cool. I think about that a lot whenever I order a package about like, where is it coming from? I want to end on a fun question. If you were not a software engineer, what would you be? I would be a leadership coach. Uh, I say that because in my growth in my previous company, I was managing 12 engineers, 20 engineers, 40 engineers, <laughs> etc. And some of the things I was doing when we were, say, 12 engineers versus when we were 40, we're not as productive anymore. And we got some feedback and I realized 
that I was not having the impact that I wanted to have. And so I got an executive coach to help me, which I was very thankful for. And I got a lot out of it and made a profound impact on my career. And that's something that I wanted to study more on. And so I actually got approval from the company to get my coaching certificate so I could fully understand the breadth of that domain and other behaviors that I probably needed to work on, not just the ones that we had time to work on with the coach that I had for the year that I had it. So that's something that I would really like to pay it forward because it had such a big impact. I kind of think of it as personal financial training. We don't really have any of that in high school or in college. It's just sort of like, here's a credit card, here's money. And we learn by mistakes a lot of times the hard way, I guess, in that particular area. And I see the same thing happening, I think, with a lot of engineers that go into management where they're not really provided much support. And there's some folks that wind up going back. And I would love to help them continue to go forward. I love that answer. I think it's important for people to remember that your managers are also people and management doesn't necessarily come naturally. And so I think looking like deep within inside yourself and wanting to better that set of skills is a really lovely thing and wanting to pass it on. I think that's lovely. David, thank you so much for joining. It was delightful to talk to you. And to all of our listeners, if you or your company are using Elixir in an interesting way and want to come on the show for a mini feature, we would love to have you. Reach out to us at podcast at smartlogic.io with your name, your company's name, and how you're using Elixir. And that's it. That's it for this episode, you guys of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again so much, Maxime Federoff, for joining us. It's been really great to talk to you, learn more about WhatsApp and scalability and your journey into Erlang and the Beam. Elixir Wizards is a Smart Logic production. Today's hosts include myself, Alex Hausen, and my co-host, Sandy Mient. Our producer is Eric Ostrich, and our executive producer is Rose Burt. We get production and promotion assistance from Michelle McFadden and Ashley Stotts. Here at Smart Logic, we build custom web and mobile software. We're always looking to take on new projects. We work in Elixir, Rails, and React, Kubernetes, and React Native. If you need a piece of custom software built, hit us up. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Follow at SmartLogic on Twitter for news and episode announcements. You can also join us on the Elixir Wizards Discord. Just head on over to the podcast page to find the link. And don't forget to join us again next week for more on Beam Magic. <laughs>